What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. King's Island is now open on weekends. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. Before we start this episode in earnest, just one quick reminder, I have a book coming out and it comes out January 18th. It's a novel called Anatomy, A Love Story, and it's a story about a young woman who wants to be a surgeon in the 1800s in Edinburgh in Scotland during the dawn of surgery, and she falls in love, or does she, with a resurrection man, a guy who digs up dead bodies to sell to doctors, as was common practice during the 19th century. So if you like this podcast, I think it's going to be really up your alley, and it would mean the world to me if you wanted to read it. So it's available for pre-order now, you know, on Amazon or wherever you get your books, your local indie bookstore, ideally. And it's hopefully going to be available in every store where you get your books starting January 18th. So thank you so much for everyone for all of their support. You could support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash noblebloodtales. And I upload episode scripts there and also do bonus episodes talking about the TV show Rain on the CW and the Tudors. And I'm thinking of doing bonus episodes on The Great. But yeah, you can find all that there. Thank you so much to everyone who supports the show. But as always, the best support is just listening. So thank you to everyone who's listened and let the show come into 2022. There's a statue in London on the western side of Westminster Bridge, a statue that stands 10 feet tall. It's a bronze statue depicting a woman riding in a chariot pulled by two horses. The woman stands with both hands raised, arms above her head like an opera singer or Ava Perone standing on a balcony. Except, unlike Ava Perone and unlike most opera singers, the woman holds in one of her upraised hands a spear. Her hair is braided beneath a crown. On either side of her are two smaller women, her daughters. It's very clearly a statue of a warrior, and the figure has been sculpted in such a way to convey to the viewer that this woman was brave and fearsome, though not so brave and fearsome that she's not also conventionally beautiful. Her gown, a simple classical shroud beneath a cloak, clings close enough to her body that you can make out the contours of her belly and her breasts. She's a warrior woman, the statue says, but she's still a woman. The statue, originally sculpted by Thomas Thornycroft in the late 1800s, is a representation of Boudicca, the warrior queen of Britain, who fended off the invading Roman forces for a little while in a surprising but ultimately unsuccessful rebellion. As described by the statue's plinth, she is, quote, Boudica, Budeica, queen of the Aseni, who died A.D. 61 after leading her people against the Roman invader. If you're British or were schooled in Great Britain or the Commonwealth, 
you're almost certainly familiar with Boudica, as she's most commonly referred to. But if you're American, her story might be a little less familiar. It's a classic tale of David versus Goliath, even if this is a case in which Goliath uses his considerable armed forces and superior weaponry and organizational strategy to defeat David. But I'm not just interested in the story of Boudicca. I'm interested in the idea of her. Or rather, how the idea of her has changed over time. You see, Thomas Thornycroft's sculpture was finally cast in bronze and erected in 1902, at the end of the reign of Queen Victoria. The statue is in an undeniable place of prominence, overlooking the Thames, facing straight toward perhaps the two most enduring symbols of London and centralized British power, Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament. Though Boudicca was a relatively obscure figure for most of British history, in the Victorian era, she exploded in popularity, becoming a figure not only in the popular artistic and literary movements of the day, but becoming a national heroine, a symbol of Britain, a face for the feminized representation of the abstract national term Britannia. Boudicca was a heroic warrior, but it might strike you, as it struck me, that she's an unusual choice to be the heroine of Victorian times, a period often stereotyped as one of piety, domesticity, and female obedience, the era that's become synonymous with women in tight corsets being afraid to talk about sex. That era certainly doesn't seem to be a natural fit for stories about a woman who led armies into battle with her hair hanging wild behind her. Plus, she was a pagan, a wild heretic who used divination and looked to nature for advice and guidance. And she, uh, burned London to the ground. We'll get to that later. But even all that aside, one might imagine buttoned-up Victorian Christianity having a more challenging time embracing a story that ends with a hero committing the sin of suicide. History, as much as it's about telling stories is about examining the reasons we choose to tell certain stories, and when. To very loosely paraphrase one of the many Batman movies, a city gets the hero it needs. In 60 AD, Boudicca fought for her life, her family, and her homeland. And then, almost 2,000 years later, even though the nation she lived in had a different name, she was resurrected to continue to fight. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. A trigger warning for anyone listening who might be sensitive to particular content, this episode contains sexual violence. Almost all of our information on Boudicca comes from two classical sources, both written a few decades after Boudicca's death. The first is by Tacitus, who actually spoke to witnesses about Boudicca's uprising firsthand. Tacitus's father-in-law was actually a Roman governor of Britain. 
The second source was written by a man named Cassius Dio, who seemingly based most of his account on the words of Tacitus, the age-old strategy of copying but changing it just enough so that the teacher won't get suspicious. For classical historians at the time, it was common practice to include, in their histories, long, flowery speeches supposedly given by their subjects. It made the history more interesting to read, more relevant to readers, and it was a chance for the authors to add some color or moral teachings. But it's important for us to remember that these speeches are meant to be evocative, but not direct transcriptions. So though Cassius Dio and Tacitus both wrote down what Boudicca allegedly said to her troops, it's not meant to be taken verbatim. After all, Boudicca wasn't speaking Latin or Greek. We're not certain when Boudicca was born. It's not recorded anywhere or reported with any real certainty, but most likely it was around 30 AD, most likely somewhere around the present-day English city of Colchester. Boudicca spent most of her life in and around what is now considered East Anglia, to the northeast of London. And though there's no source that makes it absolutely certain, it's likely that she was born into a prominent family, if not noble, then considered well-bred and well-respected. In 43 AD, what's known as the Claudian invasion of Britain began. Emperor Claudius, in Rome, began his conquest of southern Britain, or as it would have been called by the Romans, Britannia. I imagine what this must have been like for a teenage Boudicca, seeing legions of strangers carrying weapons, marching over her green hills, them making camp, laughing and jeering in a language she didn't understand. It was around this time that Boudicca got married to a man named Prasitagus, the leader of the Iseni tribe, the Britannic people living around present-day Norfolk. Sources claim that Prasitagus was long-reigning, which means it's probable that he was already king when he married Boudicca. Boudicca was tall and athletic. Women would have trained in weapons alongside men, which meant that she knew her way around a sword as well as anyone. She had long ginger hair that reached her waist and piercing eyes, and she often wore a golden necklace and a cloak fastened with a brooch. Rather than fight the Romans, Prasitagus made the pragmatic decision to ally with them. It became a mutually beneficial partnership in which the Aseni people offered assistance to the Romans in their invasion and assistance in putting down revolts against other nearby tribes. And in return, Romans allowed Prasitagus and the Aseni people protection and their much-valued independence. It worked out. At least, it did, until Prasitagus died in around 60 AD. In his will, Prasitagus left half of his fortune to his wife, Boudicca, and their two daughters. The other half of his property he left to the Roman emperor, who, by this point, was Nero. It was meant to be a generous offering, a symbolic deference as if to say, hey, you can have half of my holdings, but for the other half, let's keep that mutually beneficial salutary neglect situation going on. But the Roman Empire is known for many things and mercy towards people that they want to conquer is not one of them. 
they flat out ignored Prasatagus' will and claimed all of his property. When Boudicca attempted to defend their home from invading soldiers, the soldiers captured her. They tied her up and flogged her, blood dripping down her back and torn pieces of skin that would leave painful welts and then scars for the rest of her life. But that wasn't enough, it seems, to send the message. The Roman soldiers stormed into Boudicca's home and raped both of her daughters. The Romans knew that Boudicca was a queen and a leader, that she had the capacity to rally the Iceni people behind her. They meant the flogging and the cruel violation of her daughters to be such a humiliation, such a trauma, that it would break her and leave her defeated. It had the exact opposite effect. Boudicca began rallying troops to expel the Romans from Britain. There was precedent, stories from history that inspired her and inspired the people who followed her. A few decades earlier, in 9 AD, Prince Arminius of the Cheruski people drove the Romans out of his land in present-day Germany. And even in Britain, Julius Caesar himself had been defeated and forced to retreat. And so, Boudicca gathered men and women to fight alongside her. As she allegedly said in a speech, It is not as a woman descended from noble ancestry, but as one of the people that I'm avenging lost freedom, my scourged body, the outraged chastity of my daughters. To subtly encourage men to fight alongside her, she challenged their manliness by adding, This is a woman's resolve. As for men, you may live and be slaves. Eventually, her army had over 120,000 troops, both from the Iceni and from the neighboring tribe with whom she allied against their mutual enemy. To the shock of the Romans, Boudicca and her soldiers fought and won. They defeated the Roman 9th Legion and sacked the city of Camelodunum. They continued on pillaging and fighting, burning down homes and Roman settlements in the Roman cities of Verulamium, modern-day St. Albans, and Londinium, which, you might have correctly guessed, is where London now stands. Boudicca put her faith in a number of pagan rituals in order to lead her troops. One involved taking a hare and putting him under the many layers of her skirts. She would then lift her skirts and release the animal and watch the direction that the hare chose to run in. She knew that whichever way it went had some symbolic meaning. As Boudicca and her soldiers marched, they desecrated Roman cemeteries, breaking tombstones and knocking statues down. Some of those broken statues are still on display today at the Colchester Museum, a centuries-old reminder of anger and fury towards an invading army made simple in broken stone that lasts to this day. What helped Boudicca in these early battles was the fact that the Roman governor of the province, a man named Gaius Suetonius Paulinus, was away during her attacks. He was leading a campaign on the Welsh island Mona when he heard about the staggering defeats that his countrymen were suffering on the east side of Britain. Enough was enough. Suetonius decided 
he would bring his troops toward Boudicca for a final confrontation. There's plenty of disagreement among historians about where this final battle took place. Presumably, it was somewhere between Verulamium and Londinium. Some claim it was along a Roman road called Watling Street. What we do know is that Boudicca, her waist-length ginger hair flowing behind her, rode in a chariot up and down her ranks to rally her troops before battle. Nothing is safe from Roman pride and arrogance, she shouted, one historian claims. They will deface the sacred and will deflower our virgins. Win the battle or perish. That is what I, a woman, will do. Though Boudicca had numbers on her side, Suetonius had the advantage when it came to weaponry and strategy. With his 10,000 soldiers, mainly from the 14th Legion, he first made a tactical withdrawal in order to draw Boudicca into battle on his terms. When the battle began, the Romans began by throwing javelins at Boudicca and her army, which led to massive casualties in minutes before the two armies had even really engaged. The Romans then advanced to move in for the kill with short swords that allowed them flexibility of movement. They turned Boudicca's numbers against her. She and her army were trapped in their tight ranks. Their weapons, which were mostly long swords, were difficult to use against the Romans who came in so close and so fast. And then Suetonius released the cavalry, which encircled Boudicca's army from behind. It was only another few moments after that until the battle was over. 80,000 of Boudicca's Britons were killed. There were a comparatively few 400 dead Romans. Boudicca was captured alive, but she knew the fate waiting for her would be worse than death. She would be raped by her Roman captors or forced to become a slave or both. And so, before that could happen, Boudicca drank poison and killed herself. We don't know what happened to her two daughters. Some claim that they killed themselves as well, but they also might have died in battle. Her revolt was ultimately unsuccessful, although for a moment it almost persuaded Emperor Nero that the conquest of Britain was more trouble than it was worth. Still, the story of a woman brutalized who then rose up against her oppressor was one worth recording. Tacitus and Cassius Dio wrote in the late first century, and then it would be another few hundred years before Boudicca would appear in another major source. This time, a sixth century book by a British monk named Gildas called On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain in which Gildas describes Boudicca, not unflatteringly, as a treacherous lioness. Though Boudicca was mentioned here and there for the next few centuries after that, she didn't become anything resembling a folk hero or even a mainstream historical figure until the reign of Elizabeth I. The last Tudor queen happened to be reigning during a period in which the classical work of scholars from ancient Greece and Rome were rediscovered, including the writings of Tacitus and Cassius Dio. And Boudicca was a heroine ready-made, analogous to their own ginger-haired, notably tall Queen Elizabeth. 
Boudicca seemed to be especially relevant to their own queen when Elizabeth I made a speech to her troops at Tilbury before facing off against the invasion of the Spanish Armada. Both queens were mere women, leading massive groups of men against foreign invaders. Elizabeth was more successful than her historical counterpart. After Elizabeth's reign, interest in Boudicca waned slightly. During and after the reign of James I and VI, the King of Scotland who ruled England after Elizabeth's death, Boudicca was seen with a little bit of suspicion, to say nothing of the misogyny that you might expect in the 1600s. John Milton, in his History of Britain, frames Boudicca as shameless, a wild harridan who should have kept her mouth shut. But Milton was notable for his misogyny across the board. He didn't think any woman should occupy a position of power, least of all a woman with heretical attitudes. But by the mid to late 1700s, Boudicca began to reemerge as a historical figure, and an incredibly useful one. A historical figure who also acted as a symbol. Boudicca became not just a woman who fought and lost against the Romans in 61 AD, but a symbol for Britain as a nation. Female personification of countries is a global tradition. In America, there's a famous painting by John Gast called American Progress or Manifest Destiny. If you took AP U.S. History, you probably had to study it for your AP test. It's a painting in which idealized American pioneers travel from the right side of the canvas, painted to look like a growing dawn, towards the dark, shadowy west, where Native Americans brandish their weapons beneath dim clouds. The covered wagons, cowboys, and trains make their way towards America's expansionist destiny, and they're guided along by a massive female figure, towering high as the mountains in the background of the picture. The woman, meant to be liberty or America or God's purpose for American expansion, is bedecked with blonde curls. She wears a one-shoulder toga, evoking the classical democracies of antiquity. In France, the female personification of the nation is sometimes called Marianne. Picture the famous Eugène Delacroix painting Liberty Leading the People, in which a woman raises high the tricolor flag. It's the painting Coldplay used for their Viva La Vida album cover, if you need help remembering. Like the American figure of Liberty, this figure also wears a one-shoulder toga, although, maybe in predictable French fashion, her toga reveals both of her breasts. Though Boudicca, unlike America's blonde giantess and France's Marianne, was a real person, she served more or less the same symbolic purpose. William Cowper was a famous 18th century poet. In his work, he actually coined the phrases God moves in a mysterious way and variety is the very spice of life. But in his 1780 poem, Boudicca in Ode, he wrote, She, with all a monarch's pride, felt them in her bosom glow, rushed to battle, fought and died, Dying, hurled them at the foe. Ruffians, pitiless as proud, heaven awards the vengeance due, 
Empire is on us bestowed. Shame and ruin wait for you. And then Boudicca became permanently entrenched in British culture in 1837, when a young woman that they began calling Victoria became queen of their empire. Boudicca became the emblem of Victoria's power, a comparison made easy by the helpful coincidence that the root of the name Boudicca comes from either the Celtic or the Welsh word for victory, which meant that she and Victoria basically had the same name. During a period when Brits might have begun to fear that their empire would be in decline, Boudicca became a helpful tool to bolster national pride, a rallying symbol. Victorian children were forced in their classrooms to learn William Cowper's poem by heart, and there was a renewed interest in trying to find out where exactly her battles took place. Attention towards Boudicca reached a zenith during 1894, when archaeologists excitedly determined that an earthwork on the north side of Parliament Hill might be the site of the Iceni Queen's final resting place. Though the land was excavated and no grave was found, the public hubbubaloo of everyone talking about the ancient queen gave John Isaac Thornycraft the boost he needed to help raise funds to finally cast the sculpture made by his, by now late father, Thomas Thornycroft, who died before ever seeing his plaster cast set in bronze. In 1902, his sculpture, Boudicca and Her Daughters, was finally erected on Westminster Bridge, a permanent tribute to the woman who tried to burn London to the ground. To this day, she's still considered a national heroine of Britain. That's the story of Boudicca, and the story of the story of Boudicca, but keep listening after a brief sponsor break to hear a little bit more about rumors that still persist around her. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com noble for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince dot com slash noble. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The, I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. 
Don't wait to start your fun season. Kings Island is now open on weekends. There's still no historical consensus as to the location of Boudicca's remains. One rumor, magical but almost certainly not true, holds that Boudicca was buried in the ashes of Londinium and that a train station sprung up in the centuries after her death. The rumor is that Boudicca's body happens to be located far beneath the bricks, directly between platforms 9 and 10 where, at platform nine and three quarters, another symbol of Britannia has made his claim. Another theory, and one I quite like, even though I have absolutely no expertise to evaluate its historical accuracy. Actually, that's not true. In my limited expert opinion, I'll say this one is not true. But the idea is that the mysterious circle of Stonehenge was erected in Boudicca's honor as a funeral arrangement. This was a speculation first put forward by the writer Edmund Bolton, who lived in the court of James I and VI. I think his historical basis was mostly that it would be cool. The theory of, whoa, can you imagine? What a fun coincidence! A more likely theory is one that gives us less to hold on to. We don't know how the Iceni tribe dealt with their dead or what their rituals around funerals were, but some other tribes in Britain during the Bronze Age simply laid their dead out, in special places, to be desiccated by the elements out in the open. It's possible that that's what happened to Boudicca. If so, there would be nothing left of her. She's gone, disappeared into the British soil and air and water. Nothing left except what we want her to be. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. The show is written and hosted by Dana Schwartz. Executive producers include Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Noble Blood is on social media at Noble Blood Tales, and you can learn more about the show over at NobleBloodTales.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. What kind of fun is waiting for you at Kings Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. Kings Island is now open on weekends.